1: The rule defines digital assets very broadly and would pull in NFTs and stable coins, and there's no transaction minimum. So imagine you spend, you know, five dollars worth of USDC to like buy a cup of coffee or something, then whatever platform you're using to do that would have to furnish a 1099.
0: This content is brought to you by Uphold, which is a great crypto platform that I've been using since 2018. Uphold has all the top cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and all the altcoins. In fact, they have 260 plus cryptocurrencies on their platform. You can also trade precious metals, stable coins, and 37 fiat currencies. In addition, they are available in over 150 countries. And this platform is fully reserved. They do audits. So you can trust that your funds are safe. No commingling, no lending out your funds. If you'd like to learn more about Uphold, please visit the link in the description. Welcome to the Thinking Crypto podcast, your home for cryptocurrency news and interviews. With me today is Marissa Koppel, who is the Senior Counsel at the Blockchain Association. Marissa, great to have you back on.
1: Thanks for having me back on, Tony. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, Marissa, look, you you and the folks at the Blockchain Association have been very busy. I've seen all the letters and the comments you submitted with a variety of things happening with the government and crypto. So there's a lot to go through. Let's start with the uh, Treasury and the IRS proposed uh, t- reporting for t- crypto taxes and so forth. Tell us about that and the comments that you uh, folks submitted.
1: Yeah, for sure. So The IRS, which is part of the Treasury Department, they issued a notice of proposed rulemaking back in, I believe it was August, um, regarding the change in the definition of broker under the tax code as applied to digital assets. And the rulemaking essentially was following the passing of the infrastructure bill toward the end of 2021. And then the the infrastructure uh, bill or the act essentially directed the Treasury to do this rulemaking, interpreting the statute that Congress passed into law. So fast forward two years. I mean we we spent like, I feel like there were so many rumors of this rulemaking coming out, you know, at some point within the past two years. and then finally, like two years later, it came out. And the rulemaking basically just does what it it interpreted. It interprets Congress's definition of broker. And we filed a comment letter on Monday, as did over 125,000 people, wow, Wow. um, which is just absolutely wild and I think says a lot in terms of just the how existential this proposal would be if finalized the way that treasury interprets the term broker is way broader than what congress like set in the statute so a broker is essentially a middleman who effectuates transactions you know on behalf of somebody else right and the word "effectuates" was broadened by Treasury to basically mean someone who facilitates these transactions, and it's sort of unclear what that means. But it would the way that Treasury uh, interpreted it would essentially pull in software developers of DeFi projects. It would pull in non-custodial wallet software developers. And then, of course, it would pull in like the centralized entities like, you know, a Coinbase or a Kraken um, that would be a broker or I guess arguably would be a broker under the definition. Like they are, you know, a more traditional intermediary and they have access to information. Like when you sign up for a Coinbase account, you have to do all the KYC procedures Um, And so they're storing that information safely and they can then furnish 1099s, which is like the reporting obligation that you're probably familiar with, with, um, you know, your Vanguard account or whatever, whatever you have. Um, So, uh, but there are issues with the proposal as applied to centralized entities also, which we describe in detail in our comment letter. One, for example, is that the rule defines digital assets very broadly and mm. we would pull in NFTs and stable coins, and there's no transaction minimum. So imagine you spend, you know, five dollars worth of USDC to like buy a cup of coffee or something, then whatever platform you're using to do that would have to furnish a 1099. That's crazy. Which is crazy. Mm. Like the Treasury Department estimated, I think this was a couple of weeks ago, that they would have eight billion like uh, reports to go through, which is just wild. I don't know how they plan to actually go through all of these filings, but I mean, that's on them to figure it out, I guess. Um And then like the time to comply is really short. Even like a centralized entity would have to build entirely new systems Mm -hmm. in order to comply with this proposal. And that would take like millions of dollars. And the proposal is pretty lacking in terms of their economic analysis um, and like their analysis of the cost and burden. So we make those arguments in our comment letter. And then we spend you know, the second half of our comment letter really discusses why the proposal is unworkable as to non-custodial wallet software developers and DeFi um, software developers. Mm. Um, And I'm sure your listeners, you know, are familiar with how this tech works. But if you think about a DeFi project, it's basically impossible to gather the customer information that like you would need in order to do this type of reporting. Um, they would essentially have to do a very robust form of KYC and like collect social security numbers, names, addresses. Um, And then beyond that, even if they did collect that information, which like collecting it, they would have to store it. So it's just, you know, thinking about who would do that and how they would store it when the project is decentralized is basically impossible. And then even beyond that, they would have to figure out, you know, the basis for each transaction. And if, if the transactions, you know, it's non-custodial. So like, how are they supposed to know where the person or, you know, other project or whoever like owns that wallet address, where that, those funds originated from.
0: Yeah, it's it just seems uh, pretty crazy that they're trying to do this. So question for you, do you think this is a lack of education or there's some nefarious uh, reasons behind it? Like they're really trying to jam up or slow down this industry or a combination of both, right? It, it, obviously, we don't know what they're thinking, but from the Biden administration, we haven't seen very positive things about crypto. So what, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of a combo. And and honestly, so I testified in front of the IRS on Monday and I listening to everyone else's testimony and like the questions that I, along with others received, it does make me think that they're thinking about these issues like very critically and that they maybe didn't fully realize the impact that the proposal would have on you know, the non-custodial wallet software developers and DeFi developers. And then also, like, you know, the stablecoin issue I mentioned earlier. Like, I don't know if they had thought about that before or really understood the impact of it. But I do think that, like, you know, Treasury has been tough on our industry, although they've been more thoughtful than, let's say, like the SEC, for instance, and I think their motive feels like less rooted in bad faith. Mm. Um, but I'm hopeful that they will leave room for innovation to happen in the U.S. because the result of this, if passed in final form or in passed in the current form that it was proposed in, would essentially mean that DeFi projects would either have to shut down or move overseas or centralize, which obviously defeats the purpose of the project. Yeah. Um, so innovation would just like be very, very limited. And it's always hard to convince regulators of the value, you know, of this technology. And that's like our job in educating them. So I think In that respect, there's some education that needs to be done. But on the other hand, you know, they could be trying to slow it down. And obviously, Treasury's part of the administration, which sees like the negative, uh, the negatives about the industry and like the risks. And like that's the piece of it that they could be focused on.
0: Mm, For sure. So, I mean, on the other side, tons of comments uh, coming in, you, you mentioned 125,000. Um, so let's see what they come up with. Right. I, I think we just have to wait and see, but they, it, it seems like they would have to, they have a lot of comments to go through and hopefully yeah. that helps sway them and bring some education to, uh, to, you know, help them understand what's happening.
1: Yeah. They definitely have a lot of comments to go through. It's possible that they'll issue a reopening release and ask for more comments, Mm -hmm. Um, this is what happened with the ATS rule that the SEC, um, proposed. They initially proposed it like spring of 22, and then they issued a reopening release this year where, where they like asked for more comments. So it's possible that they'll do something similar. Um, I'm hopeful that they won't just like finalize it in the form it was proposed in though.
0: Sure. Um, So let's talk about the SEC and the SAB121. Recently, the US Government Accountability Office uh, released uh, their review of that. And I know the Blockchain Association submitted two letters about that. Tell us about SAB121 and what the GAO had to say and, and your comment letters around that.
1: Yeah, so SAB 121 is this this SAB stands for Staff Accounting Bulletin. And it's basically the SEC's view. They issue these staff accounting bulletins to essentially like express their view of accounting practices. And this one in particular expressed their view of like crypto related accounting. Um, It was initially uh, released, I think it was March of 22. And when it came out, we thought that it read a lot like a rule, like under the APA, where it was mandating that companies, you know, change their accounting practices. And if they didn't, it could potentially lead to enforcement. But they released it outside of the notice and comment procedure, like through this staff accounting bulletin. And so companies, you know, were figuring out how to follow it. And there was a lot that was written about it and why it was bad and, you know, et cetera. Um, and then we, uh, or it was Senator Lummis that sent a letter to, and I can't remember if there was another letter. There might've been one more letter that was sent to the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, um, after Sab 121 was released basically asking the GAO to issue an opinion as to whether the SAB was a rule under the Congressional Review Act. Hmm. So agencies are required to submit their proposed rules to Congress under the Congressional Review Act.
0: Hmm.
1: If it's, you know, a rule as defined by the CRA, which mirrors the def- largely mirrors the definition of a rule under the APA. So that letter was submitted to the GAO, and the GAO has to respond. They can't just like ignore it, but there's no real time frame that they have to respond in. And so they recently issued their opinion that declared that they thought that SAB 121 is a rule under the Congressional Review Act Mm. and that it meets the definition of a rule under the APA. So this opinion is not binding on a court, although it would be persuasive if there was an APA lawsuit that claimed that the SEC violated the APA by issuing this as a staff accounting bulletin rather than like an actual proposed rule that allowed notice and comment. So it would be persuasive on a court, but it's not binding. Mm. But there is a strategy in Congress where Congress can essentially try to um, get the votes to then force the SEC to like repeal the staff accounting bulletin. Mm. Um, Obviously our Congress is divided. It all, that like proposal or bill would need to be signed by the president as well. So it's sort of a, uh, you know, uphill climb to get that done. But that's like the CRA strategy But I do think the GAO's arguments, in the opinion, bolster a potential APA litigation.
0: Hmm. When you say litigation, do you mean uh, companies in the crypto industry suing the SEC?
1: Yeah. So it's possible for a company who is negatively impacted, like harmed by the staff accounting bulletin to sue the SEC for violating the Administrative Procedures Act. It's also possible for a trade association to sue the SEC, and there's something called associational standing, which means that an association can essentially step in the shoes of their members. So Mm -hmm. if one of their members is harmed, the association can file a lawsuit on their behalf.
0: So Marissa, I got to (laughs) ask, is (laughs) anything cooking up behind the scenes with you guys and any of your members?
1: i mean it's something that we've been considering for like basically since Sab was uh released and um there's nothing like final and i you know can't give too many details because it's of course privileged but uh it's definitely something that we're considering um and i don't think it's you know this impacts like non-crypto it's not just like a crypto rule it also impacts the banks so I think the banks are also thinking about this cuz if banks hold crypto on their balance sheet they they have to essentially follow this staff accounting bulletin and the burden is really high and it would um it would it would basically make it very very hard for a bank to hold like custody of crypto assets.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and it made me think of BNY Mellon. I remember I think it was 2022 when they got approved to uh, be able to, well, they launched crypto custody services, but I can imagine a rule like this would you know, slow them down. Yes, like totally. They, they could essentially sue the SEC if they were impacted, right?
1: Yeah, no, they totally could.
0: Mm, interesting. Uh, well, I'm very curious to see who in the industry steps up to bat and, <laughs> and goes out for the SEC. Um, and- yeah,
1: and I mean, it's not like a, it's really like a procedural issue like it's not just a crypto issue so a bank potentially is better positioned to file this lawsuit um so yeah
0: interesting um so then i also want to talk to you about the grayscale appeal and that ruling and grayscale winning it and these judges taking the SEC to task, calling them arbitrary and capricious and denying the SEC, uh, denying the grayscale Bitcoin spot ETF. You know, what what is your take on that ruling? And do you feel that it has lit a fire under the SEC that they need to get this in line now because everybody's looking at them, the optics look bad, members of the house, financial services, and all these guys are hunting Gary Genser right now. So what are your thoughts on the whole situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was very excited to see that ruling come out. It, it The argument, like the oral argument was fantastic. John Virilli, um, who is the was the lawyer representing Grayscale, he just did a fantastic job. And I think that the panel of judges asked very, very thoughtful questions that like really indicated they were thinking critically about the issues. Um, and their opinion was just great. Like the panel was, you know, both, I think it was, uh, two Democrats or maybe one Democrat and one, but it was a mixed panel. Um, not that that like should impact a judge's decision, but we all know the reality. Um, (laughs) so I was very excited to see the opinion come out. And I think that it was part of, it's part of like the shifting in the tide, you know, where the sec is starting to lose these cases, so that was always good to see and then in terms of like timing of when their etf will be approved or won't be approved although i think it will be approved um because they would have to then find another reason for it to not be approved you know um so i'm not sure like what the timing is i've heard like rumors you know that it could be the beginning of january so Mm. we'll see
0: yeah, I'm, I hope they don't try to come up with something. I think the, the entire industry and so many people would be upset, like I, really, yeah. like we're delaying this again. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I was speaking to uh, James Safer of Bloomberg and he's saying he's giving January 10th as that. Uh, for- <laughs> yeah,
1: I've uh, heard that.
0: <laughs> so we'll see, yeah. fingers crossed. Hopefully it's sooner than later Uh, before Christmas and we have a nice rally, <laughs> but- Yeah,
1: that would be nice.
0: <laughs> That'd be nice. Um. Oh, and I don't think we- sp- we we spoke since the Ripple ruling because there's been quite a few things like certain lawsuits dropped against Chris Larson, Brad Garlinghouse. What are your thoughts on that? And do you see the industry using this as case law? Um, you know, as the SEC's in different litigation with different people.
1: Yeah, so I think that the SEC's decision to dismiss the case against the individual defendants. I mean, it was an it was awesome, like being sued as an individual is a nightmare. And it, so it it was. it's great for them that the case against them was dismissed. Um, I think it was probably strategic on like the SEC's part, they probably want to appeal sooner. Mm-hmm. So this will allow them to do that, most likely. Um, I, and I do think that we've already seen the district court opinion being used in other cases. So of course, like a district court opinion is not precedent on any court,
0: sure. even
1: in another district court. Um, so we really need the case to go up to the Second Circuit, because if the Second Circuit issues an opinion, that opinion will be binding on all of the district courts in the Second Circuit. Mm. And then it will be, you know, persuasive for other courts as well.
0: Um, And then. In- we have the trial scheduled for next year or so you know are you seeing this wrapping up potentially going to trial or maybe they settle you know maybe uh, ripple pays whatever small fine or whatever fine the sec wants them to or they agree upon and then this thing wraps up or do you think this plays out in the courts even further
1: i think it might play out mm-hmm. I, I mean it's really hard to tell i don't know it it would be surprising if like they could agree on a settlement. I think the SEC would have to like really, um, fall on their sword, you know, for that.
0: Hmm. Um. So let's talk about Coinbase and the SEC both suing each other. Uh, uh, I'm I'm hoping Coinbase can come out of this victorious. You know, what are your thoughts? I know the Blockchain Association. You guys have submitted letters and so forth. Uh, what you, What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, so we filed an amicus brief in the enforcement action that the SEC filed against Coinbase, and that is going to oral argument in January. Hmm. So uh, I can't remember which day, I think it's the 20-something. But that will be going to oral argument, and then the court will decide one way or the other. Um, So I'm like hopeful that this judge understands these issues. I think it's the same judge that issued a very positive opinion in this class action dismissal, uh, called it was the Risley case. Mm. This was the class action that was brought against, um, like Uniswap and I think a 16 Z paradigm. Um, and it was, a it, it essentially, She basically said, like, acknowledge the lack of clarity in the industry and that Congress needs to do something and that it might not be the SEC's role to, you know, act how they're acting. So that made me hopeful for Coinbase's case.
0: Yeah, I I remember reading that as well. So that's definitely a positive. And, you know, I'm still... Just scratching my head, and I think a lot of people as well, that the SEC green lighted Coinbase, knowing their business model, knowing what they do. Yeah. They're not Amazon selling products, they sell cryptocurrencies. Like right. you can buy, sell, trade, and now you're suing them. It's it's really ridiculous.
1: I know. Um, and that's like a change in their administration, right? Yeah. So
0: yeah. So, you know, with that said, and, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but let's say. We don't know but what's going to happen with the election. Well, let's say the seat is changed to Republican and a new chair is appointed to the SEC. Can that new chair come in and wrap up these or get rid of these lawsuits?
1: Yeah, they can if they want to. There's always like voluntary dismissal.
0: Mm. Got it. Got it. OK, so let's. Maybe something to hope for.
1: <laughs> I know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we just got to uh, wait it out, right?
0: Yeah. Final item here before I let you go. Um, have you guys submitted anything on behalf of the Binance versus SEC uh, situation? Any any thoughts on that case?
1: No, we haven't submitted anything in that. Um, I think like similar arguments that would apply to the Coinbase case, but you know the facts are very different in that case right. obviously so yeah
0: yeah yeah very different yeah that makes sense i, I was just uh I, I forgot to check if you guys had done that but uh that makes sense uh, well i'm hoping for a coinbase victory and uh bitcoin <laughs> approval soon so uh marissa always a great chatting with you great insights thank you
1: yeah for sure thanks so much this was a great conversation